Blog Talk Radio. Psalm 82, a psalm of Asaph. God standeth in the congregation of the mighty. He judgeth among the gods. How long will ye judge unjustly and accept the persons of the wicked? Selah. Defend the poor and fatherless. Do justice to the afflicted and needy. Deliver the poor and needy. Rid them out of the hand of the wicked. They know not, neither will they understand. They walk on in darkness. All the foundations of the earth are out of course. I have said, Ye are gods, and all of you are children of the Most High. But ye shall die like men, and fall like one of the princes. Arise, O God, judge the earth, for thou shalt inherit all nations. Well, good morning, everyone. This is Kennard speaking. I'm your host for the Merciful Service of God. Biblical instructional program. Uh, For those who listened to my program last week, I decided to do the program over again in reference to the topic of this program. Uh, How do we worship the, the Most Holy God in spirit and in truth? And the reason why is because um, I got a little off track, and I apologize for that. So let's get back on track here and focus on what uh, the Bible study should be about here. Now, I I did, and I always do this, um, each program that I have, I do put uh, that I do focus on world events. Uh, The reason why uh, sometimes I do turn it to Scripture, let's turn to Luke chapter 21. And I, I mentioned some significant world events here because we're supposed to and we're supposed to focus on it. Uh, we are the end-time generation. I know you may have heard this before from other people, but uh, the fact that I don't know if many of you real, realize this or not, but the United Nations is uh, telling people that uh, October 31st, which is uh, Halloween, by the way, uh, which uh, I don't celebrate and uh, I know other True believers don't celebrate either for obvious reasons, but October 31st, uh, our population will reach 7 billion. That's what it would be, 7 billion people, which I believe is very significant in this 21st century, this end-time generation. Now, you know that 7 is the uh, number of completion. So we have completed or are getting ready to complete the age of man, and I really believe this century, this 21st century, um, Yeshua Messiah, Jesus Christ, will land his feet on the Mount of Olives with the saints. Hopefully that will be me and you, and also the angels, and rule this earth. That's going to happen in this century. I can't tell you what day, uh, what immediate minute he's going to come back, but I can give you a general idea, estimation based on the scriptures of when he may come. But uh, I'm not going to get up here and... Uh, like uh, Harold Camping and uh, other people, and (laughs) give you a date. I'm not going to do that. Because not even Yeshua Messiah knows the date. So if we don't know, what makes us think we're going to know? Anyway, Luke chapter 21. Luke chapter 21. I'm reading this in the English Standard Version of the Bible. For those who want to understand what I believe and, and so forth is all scripture, go to Meetup, M-E-E-T-U-P, Meetup. Look in the search 
box there, type in Merciful Servants of God, and then you'll see all the things that I think is probably over 35, 36. Sometimes I add more based on what I hear people think, and, and I know that it's an error or it needs uh, clarification, and I put it on my website. Uh, recently, I've, I've had to, I've experienced people in re- uh, that are being so overly concerned about how to pronounce uh, God's name. It can be Yehovah, Yahweh. Uh, we really don't know what the real pronunciation of it is, but many people focus too much on that, so much so that they forget the weightier matters of the law, which is faith, trust, mercy, and compassion, and, and justice, which is doing the right thing. And how do you do the right thing? By you know obeying the commandments. So uh, let's get to Luke chapter 21, verse 34. It's in the English Standard Version of the Bible. Uh, it says here, but watch yourselves, and this is a word-from-word translation, but watch yourselves, lest your hearts be weighed down with dis- dissipation and drunkenness and cares of this life, and that day come upon you suddenly like a trap, for it will come upon all who dwell on the face of the whole earth. But stay awake at all times, praying that you may have strength to escape all these things that are going to take place and to stand before the Son of Man. And this is interesting. He was, uh, as in every day, he was teaching in the temple at this particular period of time because he had went to the temple. That's not a Bible study in itself, but that's the reason why I talk about world events. We need to to be aware of what's going on in the world. We also need to be aware of what's going on with us spiritually, so we'll be able to be worthy to stand before the Messiah, the Son of Man. Okay, so that's a significant event. As far as that's concerned, uh, what's going on in Jerusalem is still uh, dilly-dallying around with uh, trying to work out a peace treaty uh, and an agreement that will allow them to eventually build the Third Temple. I know people don't seem to still understand the significance of that. You have even Messianics believing that the Temple of God is spiritual and um the prophecies in Second Thessalonians chapter two is not talking about a physical temple, but a spiritual temple, and that's not the case at all. When you look at all the scriptures and you look at what Yeshua stated, uh, there will be a temple of God built. Uh, there was a temple of God present when the first Elijah was on the earth, when the second Elijah was on the earth, who was John the Baptist, Yochanan the Immerser, his Hebrew designation. He was on the earth when the temple was built, and when the third Elijah comes, and I know many people say, well, third Elijah, well, let's turn to Matthew chapter 17. Matthew chapter 17, let's look and listen to the words of Yeshua. For those who never heard of that, that's uh, Jesus' Hebrew name. I know some people think it's Yahshua, but, you know, I'm not going to play name games, as the Bible tells us not to. Matthew chapter 17 Yahshua, Yeshua, you know, <laughs> uh, he has uh, various titles, Word of God, Matthew chapter 17, and I can find it here, verse uh, 10, Matthew 17, verse 10, and the disciples asked him, then why do the scribes say that the first Elijah must come? He answered, Elijah does come, and he will restore all things. Verse 12, but I tell you that Elijah has already come, and they did not recognize him, but did to him whatever they pleased, so also the Son of Man 
will certainly suffer at their hands. Then the disciples understood that he was speaking to them of John the Baptist. All right, so obviously in this passage of, of scriptures here, uh, Yeshua is stating that there will be a third Elijah that's going to come. Uh, it looks like this could be a man that's coming because the first two were men. And in Malachi, Malachi, now, I know Jews believe it's going to be literally Elijah, the prophet. Um, some people think uh, perhaps it, this individual could be like John the Baptist in the spirit and power of Elijah. We don't know. We will see. Matthew 4, verse 5. Well, let me just read this in, this con in the context here. Malachi chapter 4, and I think in uh, Tanakh is Malachi chapter 3. Um Malachi 4, verse 1, For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all the arrogant and all evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet. On the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Now, he tells us to remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him at Horeb for all of Israel. And in verse 5, Behold, I will send you Elijah, the prophet, before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. That's the day when Yeshua lands his feet on the, uh, on the Mount of Olives. And he will turn the hearts of fathers to their children. And then the Septuagint, which is the first um, official translation of the original Hebrew text, the Tanakh, and, and the Aramaic text, into another language, which was Greek. And it says that, uh, turn a, a man's uh, heart to his neighbor. That's what it says. It says, and he will turn a man's heart to his neighbor, and the hearts of children to their fathers, that not I come and strike the land. That's a bad translation there. That word land should be earth in the original uh, Hebrew. Strike the earth with a decree of utter destruction. So that's if this Elijah did not come, folks. If this Elijah did not come, then there would be utter destruction of the earth. That is uh, uh, how powerful uh, this message of the Elijah has to be to prevent that from occurring and. You have people going around saying the spirit of Elijah is here and so forth. Well, the spirit of Elijah, folks, is a spirit that is involved with law-keeping. Uh, Elijah was a priest. The second Elijah was the son of a priest. Uh, the second Elijah was a Levite. And the, and the Bible tells you about Levi. Let's turn to uh, Malachi chapter 2 about Levi. And this uh, Malachi chapter 2 is a prophecy to priests, especially these end-time priests, these preachers and ministers and, and rabbis and so forth that teach the law. Uh, Malachi chapter 2, verse 1. Remember now in Ephesians 2, uh, verse 20, it states that the church uh, is built on the foundations of the apostles and the prophets. And so I'm going to quote from the prophets a lot because it's based on the foundation of the assembly of the church, or the church really means assembly or congregation. 
So it's based on the uh, on, on the uh, prophets and the apostles' teachings. That's the foundation of the assembly or congregation of God's people. Anyway, Malachi 2, verse 1, And now, O priest, this command is for you. If you will not listen, if you will not take it to heart, to give honor to my name, says the Lord of hosts, and I will send a curse upon you, and I will curse your blessings. Indeed, I have already cursed him because you do not lay it to heart. Okay, so I want to get down to hear what he says about Levi here. Verse 4, So you shall know that I have sent this command to you, that my covenant or agreement with Levi may stand, says the Lord of hosts. My covenant with him was one of life and peace, and I gave them to him. It was a covenant of fear, and he feared me. He stood in awe of my name. True instruction was in his mouth, and no wrong was found on his lips. He walked with me in peace and uprightness, and he turned away many from iniquity. So, verse 7, For the lips of a priest should guard knowledge, and people should seek instruction from his mouth. For he is the messenger of the Lord of hosts. But you have turned aside from the way you have caused many to stumble by your instruction. You have corrupted the covenant of Levi. The covenant of Levi, ladies and gentlemen, involves correct teaching, true instruction, says the Lord of hosts. So I make you despise and abase before all the people, insomuch as you do not keep my ways but show partiality in your instruction. So anyway, I just wanted to read that to you, that this... Elijah's spirit involves true instruction, correct instruction. And Yeshua stated that this Elijah, whoever he is, one of his primary responsibilities is to restore all things. All things means all things, including the temple, the temple of God, through the influence of this Elijah, whoever he is, will be built. It could be a group of people with the Spirit. We don't know. We don't know. All we know is that the Spirit of Elijah, we know this. The Spirit of Elijah is a spirit of wanting to keep the commandments of God and the spirit of true instruction. And it has everything to do with the law of Moses because if we read in Luke, let's turn it, Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1, and the Elijah message is linked with the temple of God. Luke chapter 1, verse 5, Luke 1, verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zechariah of the division of Abiah. And he had a wife from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. Oh, my, I just realized this, my sister's middle name is Elizabeth. Anyway, and they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. And by the way, my middle name is Levi. And they were both righteous before God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and statutes of the Lord. But they had no child because Elizabeth was barren and both were advancing years. And I, I think everyone knows that Zechariah was the father of Yochanan um, uh, the Immerser or John the Baptist. And then the angel, I just want to go jot down here in verse 14, Luke 1 verse 14. You will have joy and gladness and many will rejoice at his birth for he will be great before the Lord. 
and he must not drink wine or strong drink, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the children of Israel to the Lord their God. And he will go before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers of the children and the disobedient to the wisdom of the just to make ready for the people, for the Lord, a people prepared. So uh, this Elijah, this third Elijah is going to prepare the people for the Messiah. And how do you do that? Well, you teach the people uh, how to keep the law of God, and, and you teach the message of loving your neighbor as yourself, which is a correction message I proved last week. If you look at uh, Leviticus chapter 19, um, well, let's turn there. It's important to turn there here. Luke, I mean, I'm sorry. Hold your place there in Luke chapter 1. I'm going to go to um, Leviticus chapter 19. Leviticus chapter 19, starting in verse um, 17, says, You shall not hate your brother in your heart, but you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, that not you incur sin because of him. And I know what the translation says, you shall correct your neighbor. That's what it means, you shall reason frankly with your neighbor, that not you incur sin because of him. You shall not take vengeance or bear a grudge against the sons of your own people, but you shall love your neighbor as yourself. I am the Lord. Okay, so that's a part of loving your neighbor when you, you go correct um, your neighbor, your fellow human being, and, and private and according to the rules that um, Yeshua outlined in Matthew chapter 18. And I think I went over that last week on, on how you do that. Yeah, and let me let me just turn there here real quickly. Matthew chapter 18, verse 15, it says, If your brother sins against you, Go and tell him his fault between you and him alone. If he listens to you, you have gained your brother. But if he does not listen, take one or two others along with you, that every charge may be established by the evidence of two or three witnesses. Now, if he refuses to listen, tell it to the church or the assembly. And if he refuses to listen even to the assembly, let him be to you as a Gentile and a tax collector. All right. And well, let me just read the rest. Verse 18. Truly I say to you, whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. This is halakha. And whatever you decisions that are bound, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Again, I say to you, if two of you agree on earth about anything they ask, it will be done for them by the Father in heaven. For where two or three are gathered in my name, there I am among them. So a fellowship could be two or three people gathered in his name. That's what he says. And there are other prophecies that state that the assemblies of, of, of Yahweh, or Yah, uh, which is shortened for God in Hebrew, uh, are scattered worldwide. Anyway, back to Luke chapter 1. Luke chapter 1. So part of this Elijah's responsibility in the future is to turn the hearts of their fathers to the children. And it's interesting when it says turn the hearts of their fathers to the children, letting us all know that it's the father's responsibility for reconciliation. Uh, the, the fathers are the leaders of families. And the disobedient to the wisdom of the just, to turn people from from being disobedient to the wisdom of the just, and to make ready for the Lord a people prepared. And in verse 18, verse 18 of Luke chapter 1, And Zechariah said to the angel, How shall I know this? For I am an old man, and my wife is advanced in years. So here, go, here we go again with the doubting. And the angel answered him, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. He literally stands in the presence of God. He's one of the cherub, 
one of the most powerful angels. He's an archangel. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you do not believe my words which were fulfilled at their time. And so this angel was very powerful here, and uh, God gave him the uh, the power to do what he did, and he, he did punish Zechariah. You know, God, you know, God hates, uh, he hates, what am I trying to say here? He hates when we doubt his words. He doesn't like that, folks. He really doesn't. All right, so let's get back to um, what the words, the word of God is saying about um, John the Baptist here. In verse 76 of Luke chapter 1, it says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High. So he was the prophet of the Most High. He was the prophet of God the Father here. That's what uh, Yochanan was here. So he says, And you, child, will be called the prophet of the Most High, for you will go before the Lord to prepare his ways, to give knowledge of salvation to his people. That's what the Elijah message should be about, knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins. So this is a repentance message. You must change because of the tender mercy, and this Elijah will talk about the mercies of God, because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise shall visit us from on high to give light to those who sit in darkness and in the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. And what is the way of peace, folks? Let's let's turn to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Psalm 119. Verse 165. Great peace have those who love your Torah or law. Torah means the correct the correct teachings of God. And that is translated, the word law, in most cases in the Tanakh or the Old Testament is translated, um, Torah is translated law in English. But it really means teachings of uh, Yah. Great peace have those who love your Torah. Nothing can make them stumble. And the reason why uh, they have peace is because they keep the Torah. And they don't stumble. Verse 166, I hope for your salvation, O Lord, and I do your commandments. So if you hope for salvation, you are keeping those commandments. And that's what the Elijah message is all about as well. And this is interesting about Elijah, verse here, or Yochanan. The immerser and the child grew and became strong in spirit. So he was strong in spirit. So this individual was strong in spirit. And he was in the wilderness until the day of his public appearance to Israel, or Israel. So that gives you, I, I just wanted to explain a little bit more about the Elijah message. Uh, it, it's uh, Or those that's going to have the spirit of Elijah, or this individual that will have the spirit of Elijah. Uh, for those who follow this this uh, individual, they will also have his spirit. They will think like him and act like him and do things like him. So we're talking about the spirit. We definitely are 100% talking about, in this end time, the spirit and power of Elijah will exist. And this message involves the temple, it involves changing, repenting, and it involves it involves a repentance message, forgiveness of sins, and having mercy, talking about mercy, uh, being compassionate. Um, let me just mention one other thing here. 
I just want to talk about this because, and I'm going to get to the title of the, of the Bible study, but this is important that I emphasize this. Um, Luke chapter 3. Luke chapter 3. And starting in verse um, 2. During the high priesthood of Annas and Caiaphas, Caiaphas, the word of God came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness. And remember now, he's the son of Zechariah, a priest, so he has priestly blood in him, and he's a Levite. So John is a Levite. And came to John, the son of Zechariah, in the wilderness, and he went into all the region around Jordan, proclaiming a baptism or immersion of repentance, change, for the forgiveness of sins. That is, is written in the book of words of Isaiah the prophet. The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make his path straight. Every valley shall be filled, and every mountain and hill shall be made low. And the crooked shall become straight, and the rough places shall become level ways, and all flesh shall see the salvation of God. Now, of course, that's a prophecy that hasn't been fulfilled yet. That Obviously, this is going to be fulfilled by the third Elijah. But the second Elijah didn't fulfill all this. And in verse 7, He said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized by him, You brood of vipers! who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. So his message is a powerful message. And it's going to be a message that most you know, a lot of people don't want to hear. They don't want to hear, wait a minute, if I don't obey, I'm going to be thrown in a lake of fire. Yes, you will. Verse 7, he said, therefore, to the crowds that came out to be baptized and immersed by him, you brood of vipers, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come. That's some strong language there, but it's language out of love. It's, it's, it's uh, language out of love here. We have... Abraham as our father, for I tell you, oh, wait a minute, right here, verse 8, who, or verse 7, rather, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. I've, I know some false ministers that I've listened to over the years said, well, that's talking about what you have. No, that's talking about what you do. Man's goal, one of man's major goals, is to learn the art of human relations, how to treat your human neighbors kindly and with compassion, and with justice, and also how to talk and communicate with God. That's our two goals, major goals. That's the fruits that he's talking about here. Verse 8, bear fruits in keeping with repentance. Bear fruits in keeping with repentance or change. And do not begin to say to yourselves, we have Abraham as our father. For I tell you, God is able from these stones to raise up children for Abraham. So God doesn't play favorites here. And it's because you're a Jew or child of Abraham and part of Israel doesn't mean that you have preeminence or, over someone else as far as it being easy for you to make it into the, uh, the kingdom of God. Anyway, verse 9, even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. Even now the axe is laid to the root of the trees. We are the trees. Every tree, therefore, that does not bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire. So this is a serious message here. And it scared, it scared these folks in, in verse 10. And the crowds asked him, well, what, then we, what shall we do? In verse 11, and he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. Now, he didn't say uh, go go use tefillin, right? Did, did he say um, go wear a head covering to repent? Did, did he say uh, the various, even though, you know, a lot of the Jewish traditions are, are appropriate. I'm not saying they're not. It's just that that's not the whole focus. Whether or not you're doing, you're, you're you're meditating about God's law, using tefillin, or um, wearing a head covering, 
uh, women and, and so forth. That that's not the focus uh, of wearing your beard right. That's not the focus of repentance, folks. Because if it was, he would have told them to do that first. He said in verse ten, and the crowds asked him, "What?" Then shall we do, in verse 11, and he answered them, Whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whatever, or whoever, or whoever has food is to do likewise. So that's what we're supposed to do first to help us repent, care about people, share our possessions. That's what repenting is all about. That's the catalyst to repent. Verse 12. He says, tax collectors also came to him to be immersed and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. And if you collect more than what you're authorized to do, which not only tax collectors but many uh, banking institutions and and insurance um, companies and so forth, uh, they, they take out more than what they should. Not to say all of them do, but some do. Some have been caught doing it. Uh, it says, uh, verse 14, soldiers also asked him, and we, what shall we do? And he said to them, do not extort money from anyone by threats or false accusation, and be content with your wages. Now, this means, that, you know, if you're making a decent amount of money, don't be greedy for more of it. Now, of course, if you're just working at McDonald's, minimum wage, can't pay your bills, uh, you shouldn't be content with that. I mean, be content that you're making something, but you should try to improve yourself. This message really is for people who are making quite a bit of money, and they still want more. They're greedy, 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 similar to the rich fool that's uh, talked about in Luke chapter 12. But anyway, that is the Elijah message, folks. That is the Elijah message. And and, and this is a very powerful message, and if, if you don't want to change, if you want to stay the same, then that message is not going to be for you. If you feel you know everything and feel that uh, you know what you need to be able to repent, uh, and you just don't need to, to do anything else, then the Elijah message isn't for you. But I guarantee you that uh, you will hear about this message. Everyone will. So anyway, and I try to do the best I can to preach this message, the Elijah message. Uh, I try to follow the example of the first Elijah and the second Elijah. And uh, if you read the story of Elijah, the situation where uh, he wanted to prove, and he did prove, that Elohim, our God, is the true God versus their gods. Uh, that's what Elijah is all about, too. He doesn't deviate. He's going to obey the, the true God, and he's going to teach you about the true God. So anyway, what we're going to do today, let me look at my episode information here. Um we are going to focus on uh, the summary of Torah readings. I'm just going to do a summary now because I'm going to do this Bible study on how we worship the Most Holy God in spirit and in truth. I don't know how many Bible studies it's going to be. We'll see. Only, only uh, Yahweh knows. But um, I'm going to uh, just summarize the Torah readings because I have so much material to go over here to answer this question about how we should worship the eternal God. All right, so the Torah readings we're going to go over today uh, with the help of Chabad.org, C-H-A-B as in boy, A-D, as in dog.org, is uh, Genesis chapter 1 to chapter 6, verse 8, and then Genesis chapter 6, verse 9, to Genesis chapter 11, verse 32. Then the uh, Torah section, Isaiah chapter 42, verses 5 to 11, and Isaiah chapter 54, verses 1 to 10. 
And uh, the wisdom scripture is Proverbs 22, verse 3, that we're going to go over, hopefully. And the renewed covenant, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Luke 17, verse 20 and 37. Hebrews 11, verse 7, uh, we're going to go over all those scriptures. And then I will finally start talking about <laughs> how we worship the most holy God in spirit and in truth. Okay, so that's what we're going to do. And so let's go to Parsha Bereshit, which is Genesis. And let's um, read the summary that they have here on Chabad here. Let's give them credit. All right, so this passage of Scripture, Genesis chapter 1, and ending in Genesis 6, verse 8, Bereshit says, God creates the world in six days. On the first day, he creates, he makes darkness and light. On the second day, he forms the heavens, dividing the upper waters from the lower waters. On the third day, he sets the boundaries of land and sea and calls forth trees and greenery from the earth. On the fourth day, he fixes the position of the sun, moon, and stars as timekeepers and illuminators of the earth. Fish, birds, and reptiles are created on the fifth day, land animals, and then the human being, the human being, on the sixth. God ceases work on the seventh day and sanctifies it as a day of rest. God forms the human body from the dust of the earth and blows into his nostrils a living soul. Originally, man is a single person, but deciding that it is not good that man be alone, God takes a side from the man, forms it into a woman, and marries them to each other. So this is the first official marriage. Now remember, let me explain to you what the marriage relationship is. I have a Jewish rabbi to thank me for this simple explanation about the roles. The man drives the car. The woman is the engine. Again, the man drives the car. But the woman is the engine. And how can you drive a car without the engine? That's a, I think it is the most significant part to a car, isn't it? So, you women, you won't ever hear me bash your your role in society or in a marriage. Uh, being an engine is a very important role. All right, so I just want to summarize that, uh, and I know in, in the future I will give uh, extensive Bible studies on a marriage and how it should work. Matter of fact, I do have Bible studies on that in the archives if you want to listen to it. But anyway, uh, Adam and Eve are placed in the Garden of Eden and commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that it means exactly what it says. Uh, the knowledge, excuse me, let me get my headset fixed here. Commanded not to eat from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And that's what the tree was. The serpent persuades Eve, and the serpent uh, obviously has something to do with Hasatan, or Satan, the devil. The serpent persuades Eve to violate the command, and she shares the forbidden fruit with her husband because of their sin. And does anybody know what the definition of sin is? I don't, most people don't, unfortunately. Let's turn to 1 John 3. First John 3, verse 4. This is a simple definition of what sin is. Sin is, as a definition of what love is, too, in the Bible. But anyway, First John 3, verse 4. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. Sin is lawlessness or torahlessness, not keeping the commandments of God. That's what sin is. All right. Getting back to Habad's uh, commentary on uh, the first... Uh, 
passage of uh, Torah readings here. It says, because of their sin, it is decreed that man will experience death. Now remember, that that's important to understand that, that prior to this sin, there was no death. Death is not a natural condition, folks. And we should not be dying. And 1 Corinthians chapter 15 that I hope to go over today will explain to you why the Messiah had to come to eliminate sin. And if sin is eliminated, that means death is eliminated. That is really the message of, of the gospel. That's the good news. Anyway, because of their sin, it is decreed that man will experience death returning to the soul from which he was formed. And that all gain will come only through struggle and hardship. I want you to understand that. That all gain will come only through struggle and hardship. You know, I didn't hardly get any sleep this week. I had to get some schoolwork, graduate schoolwork done. On Friday, I had an appointment with this creative agency to do uh, to write sales letters and advertising copies for uh, advertising copy rather for various uh, companies uh, doing marketing work and so forth. And I only had about five hours of sleep, and but I had to fight. I had to struggle. I had to do what a man has to do to uh, persevere and to be successful. So I understand what this means when it says all gain will come through struggle and hardship. It says man is banished from the garden. Now man consists of a man and a woman. And it says Eve gives birth to two sons, Cain and Abel. Cain quarrels with Abel and murders him, unfortunately, and becomes a rootless wanderer. And a third son is born to Adam, Seth, whose tenth generation descendant Noah is the only righteous man in a corrupt world. Now, Understand that Yeshua compares this world to that world today. He said at the time of his coming, it would be similar to the days of Noah and Lot. All right, so that's a summary of uh, Bereshit. And now let's go to the Hattor section. Well, actually, let's go. I'm going to go to the second one, the, the current one for this week, because I was behind last week. So let's go to uh, Genesis. Uh, what's the next one here? Genesis. Chapter 6, verse 9, to chapter 11, verse 32. And I'm going to go ahead and uh, read the current description here of this Parsha. Courtesy of Chabad, C-H-A-B as in boy, A-D dot org. It says, God instructs Noah, the only righteous man in the world, consumed by violence and corruption. Now, in Luke chapter 17, he compared the 21st century, to this age, all right? And I don't believe that there's only one righteous man on this earth, but but it, it sometimes, I, I don't know, it, it's just, um, I know there's not that many. I mean, the Jews, they, they believe there's 36 people, righteous people on the earth is all time. And that, you know, that could have some credence, really, the more I think about it. But anyway, God instructs Noah, the only righteous man in the world consumed by violence and corruption, to build a large wooden Tavia, or ark, coated within and without with pitch. A great delude, says God, will wipe out all life from the face of the earth, but the ark will float upon the water, sheltering Noah and his family and two members, male and female, of each animal species. Rain falls for 40 days and nights, and the waters churn for 150 days more before calming and beginning to recede. The ark settles on Mount Ararat, and from its window Noah dispatches a raven, and then a series of doves to see if the waters were abated from the face of the earth. When the ground dries completely exactly one solar year, 365 days after the onset of the flood, God commands Noah to exit the Tevia and repopulate the earth. 
and that's what happened. He repopulated the earth. And Noah builds an altar and offers sacrifices to God. God swears never again to destroy all of mankind because of their deeds. So when God says something, he, unlike a lot of people, uh, he follows through on what he says. And sets the rainbow as a testimony of his new covenant with man. Whenever you see that rainbow outside, you should understand that God has proven to you that he exists. And that rainbow was the covenant and promise that he would never destroy mankind again. Uh, destroy all mankind means wipe out mankind. The only uh, the the the, the uh, residue of mankind was Noah, eight people, and his family. But he promised not to ever ever destroy mankind like that again. He says God, and he made a new covenant with man. God also commands Noah regarding the sacredness of life. Murder is deemed a capital offense. And while man is permitted to eat the meat of animals, he is forbidden to eat flesh or blood taken from a living animal. Noah plants a vineyard and becomes drunk on his produce. Two of Noah's sons, Shem and Japheth, are blessed for covering up their father's nakedness. While his third son, Ham, is cursed for taking advantage of his debasement. The descendants of Noah remain a single people with a single language and culture for ten generations. And that's the key there. The descendants of Noah remain a single people with a single language and culture for ten generations. Then they defy their creator by building a great tower to symbolize their own invincibility. God confuses their language. So this is the origins of different languages. God is responsible. So if you don't like that, you need to talk to him about it. He created all the different languages. So God confuses their language so that one does not comprehend the tongue of the other, causing them to abandon their project and disperse across the face of the earth splitting into 70 nations. The Parsha of Noah concludes with a chronology of the ten generations from Noah to Abraham and the latter's journey from the birthplace of Ur, Kazdim, to Quran on the way to the land of Canaan. So that's the summary of that. There's a lot of things I could talk about, but I just don't have the time. And uh, I think one of the interesting things that I guess I will talk about here um, in Genesis the comment that he made, I think, is very significant here in Genesis. Chapter, what is it? Genesis chapter 11. Verse 5. Genesis 11, verse 5. And the Lord came down to see the city and the tower which the children of man had built. And the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing, and he meant nothing, nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Let me read that statement again. Our eternal God is stating the following at this particular time in history. He says, and nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. So he's saying they had the capability to do anything in the physical universe. All right? Now, God wisely, in verse 7, did this. Come, let us go down and there confuse their language so that they may not understand one another's speech. So the Lord dispersed them from there over the face of all the earth, and they left off building the city. Now, keep in mind, this is ten generations with the same language. These folks were very intelligent. Uh, there's books written, I think there's one particular, I can't remember the book's name. What's that? Could you get that book over there at the far end on the, the second shelf there? 
at from the top on the left on the left side yeah on the left side on the left side yeah that one the the the, the very last book the very last book right yeah yeah this book is called the genesis flood biblical record and its scientific implications this is by john c whitecomb and henry m morris this book proves that Noah's generation was an advanced generation, maybe just as advanced as, uh, as us or even more. All right? Uh, there's a scripture in Ecclesiastes. Let's turn there. Ecclesiastes chapter 1. Ecclesiastes chapter 1, verse 9. It says, What has been is what will be. And what has been done is what will be done. There is nothing new under the sun. Verse 10. Is there a thing of which it is said, see, this is new. It has been already in the ages before us. I don't know if many people realize what that's saying. <laughs> but it only confirmed what I just told you. Okay, and that book, if you still have doubts, get that book and read it. Use it as a reference book. Read it. They do have uh, evidence that Noah's civilization was very advanced. Very advanced indeed. There's other books, too, saying that they had planes. They had electronic devices. Uh, perhaps they were even visiting the moon. Okay? But I just showed you a scripture about nothing new other than the sun. Okay, so, of course, these people after the flood, they perhaps Noah's um, sons remembered those uh, technological advances, and they were trying to get to that point again. And, of course, back in Genesis chapter 11, he state, stated in verse 6, and the Lord said, Behold, they are one people, and they have all one language, and this is only the beginning of what they will do. And nothing that they propose to do which will now be impossible for them. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. Again, let me repeat that. And nothing that they propose to do will now be impossible for them. This is coming from the Word of God, folks. All right, so Yahweh was not ready for us to build a nuclear bomb at that time. All right, and so he he created the original languages, so there would be a delay, a, a, a vast delay in that occurring. In 1945, August 6, with the destruction of uh, Hiroshima and Nagasaki, we, as President Harriet Truman stated in a speech, you can Google this on um, Google the Google search engine. Harriet Truman, August 6, 1945. He said that we had tapped into the power of the universe at that particular period of time. Prior to that, we did not tap into the power of the universe. And obviously, God was not ready for us to do that at that particular period of time. And so that happened in 1945. And we have been messing around with the, the tapping into the power of the universe ever since. And in Matthew chapter 24. So he delayed that ability for us until these end times. Matthew chapter 24. He wasn't ready for them at that particular period of time because the Messiah didn't come yet. He wasn't ready for us <laughs> to build a nuclear bomb. He was not going to allow us to do that. Matthew chapter 24. We're living in the time now, folks, where... Verse uh, Matthew 24, verse 21, it says, For then there will be great tribulation such as not, has not been from the beginning of the world until now, no, and never will be, 
And if those days had not been cut short, no human being would be saved. No human being would be saved. But for the elect's sake, those days would be cut short. Why? Because he promised he would never destroy all of mankind anymore, like he did with the flood. And so we've been in the nuclear bomb generation since 1945. It began in 1945 with the destruction or partial destruction of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. And we've been in in, in this generation ever since. And this is the generation that he stated would not pass, a generation when you look at Psalm 90. Uh, could be 70 or 80 years. So we've been in this generation since 1945. And and these definitely are the end times that he described. And then um, in Daniel chapter 7 is a very significant scripture. Well, he talks about this end time fourth beast that has its genesis in the United Nations. I don't know if it's going to be called the United Nations in the future, but it has its genesis, it has its beginnings in the United Nations. Uh, Genesis, uh, I'm sorry, not Genesis, Daniel chapter 7, verse 23. It says, Thus he said, As for the fourth beast, there shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all the kingdoms, and it shall devour the whole earth, and trample it down, and break it to pieces. I only know one weapon that we have that can do that break the earth into pieces, a hydrogen bomb, a nuclear bomb. So we are living in the days of horror, the days of destruction. And for us to be able to stand before the Son of Man, the Messiah, we better be about our Father's business and keep the commandments. All right, so let's look at the Hattorah section of the first Parsha, and then we'll look at the Haftorah section of the second one. Haftorah is the prophetic section of the traditional Torah readings. Isaiah chapter 42, Isaiah chapter 42, starting at verse 5. Uh, verse 21. I'm not going to read the script. I'm just going to read the summary. It says, The Hattorah of the week's reading opens with a statement by the Almighty God who created the heavens and, and stretched them out, who laid out the earth and made grow from it. The echoes of the Torah portions recounting of the creation of the world in six days. God speaks to the prophet Isaiah, reminding him of his life's purpose and duty, namely that of arousing the Jewish people to return to being a light unto the nations, to open blind eyes, to bring prisoners out of a dungeon, those who sit in darkness out of a prison. The prophecy continues with a discussion regarding the final redemption and the song that all creation will sing to God on that day. God promises to punish all the nations that have persecuted Israel while they were exiled. The prophet also rebukes Israel for their errant ways, but assures them that they will return to the correct path and will be redeemed. And I need to to say this, Israel is not just the Jews, folks. (laughs) Let me drink some water here. Israel is not just the Jews. Ah, that's better. Israel is not just the Jews. It's also the United States, the the British Commonwealth of Nations, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, the countries in northwestern Europe, Canada. Uh, For proof of that, turn uh, or go to www.b, as in boy, r-i-t-a-m, as in mother.org. Also, Israel are people scattered around the world who 
claim to believe that Yeshua is the Messiah or Jesus is the Christ because he's the king of Israel. And if you submit to the king of Israel, you become a part of Israel. Okay. And that is Israel in these end times. Now let's go to the uh, the second Hattor of the second Parsha that I talked about. So, you know, I, I, I preach the message of the spirit of restoration. I you know, I, I, I wanna I have a desire to, to 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 understand everything that needs to be understood to uh restore things. And you should have that same spirit. You should want to know all you need to know about all the plan of God and, and what needs to be done to restore all things. Okay. Trying to find a Hattor section here. Okay, here we go. The summary of the Hattor of Isaiah 54, verses 1 to 10. It says, Forsaken Jerusalem is likened to a barren woman devoid of children. God enjoins her to rejoice for the time will come when the Jewish nation, or Israel, will return and proliferate, repopulating Israel's once desolate cities. The, the tribe of Judah is there right now, but the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37 reveals that also the ten tribes of Israel, which the United States peoples, uh, Canada, countries in Northwestern Europe, uh, Australia, New Zealand, South Africa, there's going to be quite a few of those folks being brought back. And, of course, uh, those who uh, believe uh, that the King Messiah is Jesus Christ, they will all be brought back to that literal land according to the prophecy in Ezekiel chapter 37, was the house of Judah and, and, and Ephraim and, and the house of Judah. But anyway, for the time will come when, and that's what the gospel is about too, the, those two tribes uniting again and being becoming Israel again. For the time will come, complete Israel. For the time will come again when the Jewish nation will return and proliferate, repopulating Israel's once desolate cities. The prophet assures the Jewish people that God has not forsaken them Although he has momentarily hid his countenance from them, his face, he will gather them from their exiles with great mercy. The Torah compares the final redemption to the pact God made with Noah in this week's Torah reading. Just as God promised to never bring flood over the entire earth, so too he will never again be angry at the Jewish people or the rest of the tribes of Israel. For the mountains may move and the hills might collapse, but my kindness shall not depart from you, neither shall the covenant of my peace collapse. Okay, so that that's what that Torah reading is all about. And let's get to the the wisdom scripture that I wanted to focus on, uh, which is Proverbs 22, verse 3. Proverbs 22, verse 3. And so next week I'll be able to get into the, the title of this, um, the subject matter of this Bible study, which I may change, but it's still going to be about how we worship God in spirit and truth next week. I won't have too, so many parts to go over. So Proverbs, if I can find Proverbs here, 23, verse 3. It says, do not desire his, uh, oh boy, I misquoted again, I hate when I do this. Proverbs 22, verse 3. Proverbs 22, verse 3 
says, the prudent sees danger and hides himself, but the simple go on and suffer for it. So when when you get warnings, you don't want to just take it lightly. All right, that's the lesson for that. Now, 1 Corinthians chapter 15, how much time I have left here? 1 Corinthians chapter 15. I have plenty of time left, looks like. All right, 1 Corinthians chapter uh, 15. Now, this goes hand in hand with what happened in Genesis, and this is a beautiful chapter because it explains to you the entire plan of God. Verse 1. Now I would remind you, brothers, of the gospel I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved. Being saved. You're not saved yet, but you're being saved. If you hold fast to the word I preached to you, unless you believed in vain. For I delivered to you as first importance what I also received, that Christ, or the Messiah, died for our sins in accordance with the Scriptures, that he was buried and he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scriptures, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, although some have fallen asleep or dead. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles. Last of all, as to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. For I am the least of the apostles, unworthy to be called an apostle, because I persecuted the church of God. But by the grace of God I am what I am, and his grace toward me was not in vain. On the contrary, I worked harder than any of them, Though it was not I, but the grace of God that is in, that that is with me. Whether then it was I or they, so we preach, and so you believe. Now, verse 12. Now, if Christ is proclaimed as raised from the dead, how can some of you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? And back then, some people were actually saying there was no resurrection of the dead. Amazing, isn't it? Anyway, verse 13. But if there is no resurrection of the dead, then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, then our preaching is in vain and your faith is in vain. So part of the gospel is understanding that (laughs) Yeshua beat death. If you don't understand that, then all this preaching that I'm doing doesn't make any sense. That's what he's saying. Verse 15, we are even found to be misrepresenting God because we testified about God that he raised Christ, whom he did not raise, if it is true that the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, not even Christ has been raised. Verse 17, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you are still in your sins. Verse 18, then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. And if in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are all people most to be pitied. Verse 20, but in fact Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep, for as by man came death, by man came death, again I'm going to repeat that, by man came death. By a man has also by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. Verse twenty two, for as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. This is the gospel, folks. This is the message of the gospel. Verse twenty three, this is the good news, that's what gospel means. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end. This is the end the real end, the total end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. Verse 25, For he must reign, the Messiah must reign on the earth until he has put all his enemies under his feet, under his footstool. Verse 26, 
The last enemy to be destroyed is death. That's why the Messiah manifested himself, to destroy death. Death causes sin. Sin is linked with death. That's what the gospel is all about. It's a message. The sole purpose is to destroy death, to eliminate death so that we can all live and enjoy each other and be around the Father. Verse 27, for God has put all things in, in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted who put all things in, in subjection under him. It's talking about the Messiah as a God, and that God put all things underneath him. That's what that's saying there. Verse 28, when all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself, the Son himself would also be subjected to him. Who? The Father. Who put all things in, the, in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. That is the overall goal. God wants a family. He wants to dwell in all of us. He wants us all to be like him, look like him, think like him, act like him. But he's not going to force us to. We have to want to be like him. Verse 29 of 1 Corinthians chapter 15. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all... Why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Yeah, I'm like, hey, if, if, it's, if we're going to die, yeah, I'll be doing the same thing. I'll be eating and drinking and doing what I want to do, right? You know, But but that's not the, the issue. We know that Yeshua was resurrected and there is a God and he wants us all to live. Verse 33. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. So that's something I tell my son um, frequently, that uh, you got to be careful who you're around because no matter how righteous you are, it could uh, ruin your good morals uh, that you've established. Verse 34. Wake up from your drunken stupor, as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. So again, the gospel message is about destruction of death, which is the destruction of sin, and that we must go on and stop sinning. I don't know if you hear that from any minister, but that's the gospel message, is the fact that the Messiah had to come and pay the death penalty for us so we can stop sinning. But we have to stop. He's not going to stop sinning for us. We have to stop sinning. Verse 35, but someone will ask, how are the dead raised? Now, that's an interesting question. Anyway, he answers this in this uh Beautiful passage here. With what kind of body do they come? You foolish person. What you sow does not come to life unless it dies. And what you sow is not the body that is to be, but a bare kernel, so is what you plant. Perhaps of wheat or some other grain. But God gives it a body as he has chosen, and to each kind of seed his own body. For not all flesh is the same, but there is one kind for humans, another for animals, another for birds, another for fish. There are heavenly bodies and earthly bodies, but the glory of the heavenly is one kind, and the glory of the earthly is of another. There is one glory of the sun, and another glory of the moon, and another glory of the stars, for star differs from star in glory. So it is with the resurrection of the dead. What is sown is perishable. What is raised is imperishable. It is sown or planted in dishonor. It is raised in glory. It is planted or sown in weakness, it is raised in power. It is sown a natural body. It is raised a spiritual body. That's what we're going to have, a spiritual body just like Yeshua. 
If there is a natural body, there is also a spiritual body. Thus it is written, the first man, Adam, or mankind, became a living being. The last Adam, that's another nickname for the Messiah, became a life-giving spirit. We're going to become life-giving spirits like he. But it is not the spiritual that is first, but the natural and then the spiritual. The first man was from the earth, a man of dust. The second man is from heaven. As was the man of dust, so also are those who are the dust. And is and as is the man of heaven, so also those who are of heaven. We're going to have a heavenly image. Just as we born the image of man of dust, we shall also bear the image of the man of heaven. Verse 50. I tell you this, brothers, flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the imperishable. Behold, I tell you a mystery. We shall not all sleep, but we shall all be changed in a trump in a moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trump. The last trump is the last trump in the book of Revelation, at that trump, despite what some people have been preaching. For the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable, and this mortal body must put on immortality, which means we don't have it yet, despite what the Catholic Church and other churches teach. Verse 54. When the perishable puts on the imperishable, and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? Verse 56. The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the Torah or the law. But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse 58. Therefore, my beloved brothers, be steadfast, immovable, always abounding in the work of the Lord, knowing that in the Lord your labor is not in vain. And then in Daniel, let's turn there, Daniel chapter 12, starting in verse 1. This is going to happen in this century. I can't see it happening in the 22nd century. If the Messiah doesn't come back in this century, we're dead. <laughs> the way we're going right now. Daniel chapter 12, verse 1. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge of your people, and there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. I quoted the same thing in Matthew chapter 24. But at that time your people will be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book, and many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall wake, some to everlasting life, and some to shame and everlasting contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness of the sky above. And those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. So we're going to shine like the stars. and We're going to look glorious and, and look all powerful just like our, our Messiah. We're going to marry the Messiah. And, of course, a wife is like her husband. And, and that's the way we're going to be. We're a type of wife. In reference to um, the relationship we have with the Messiah. So that's very important for you to understand that that's what the gospel is all about. Okay, so we understand what the gospel is all about. And I just wanted to read this uh, scripture here that. In uh, Philippians 3, verse 20, 
to 21. But our citizenship is in heaven. And that's not a Bible study. But anyway, but our citizenship is in heaven, and from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. So I just wanted to read that. That's pretty plain there about what's going to happen to us. So so that's the gospel, folks. That's the simplest way I can put what the gospel is all about. And then Luke chapter 17. Luke chapter 17. And this is a significant prophecy here uh, because we are living in the days of Noah and Lot today. Luke chapter 17, verse 20. Being asked by the Pharisees when the kingdom of God will come, he answered them, The kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. So people that are looking for this comet and that comet and all this other stuff, what does he say here? He says the, the kingdom of God is not coming with signs to be observed. Verse 21, nor will they say, look, here it is, or there. For behold, the kingdom of God is in the midst of you. In other words, the kingdom of God, the spiritual kingdom of God was there in the form of Yeshua Messiah. Verse 22, and he said to the disciples, these days are coming when you... I mean, the days are coming when you will desire to see one of the days of the Son of Man, and you will not see it. And they will say to you, look there, or look here. Do not go or follow them. I know me and my wife was in this false church, and they were teaching that um, Jesus showed up at a court case. You know, so that that's you're going to hear of ridiculous things like that as, as we near the end, but uh, he's telling you that not to listen to folks like that. Verse 23, they will say to you, look here, or look there. Do not go out or follow them. Verse 24, so he's saying that when he comes, everyone's going to know it. For as the lightning flashes and the lights up the sky, as the lightning flashes and lights up the sky from one side to the other, so will the Son of Man be in his day. But first he must suffer many things and be rejected by this generation, and he was. He was rejected by uh, his generation, and he's rejected in this generation too, unfortunately. Verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah... Just read that to you about what the days of Noah was about. Hold your place here and let me let me just read what God said about the days of Noah so that you understand the days we're living in today. Genesis chapter six, verse one. And I just opened this program to tell you that we have reached a pinnacle in world history. Seven billion people, perhaps there were seven billion people at the time of Noah's day. But we've reached seven billion people. October 31st, you can Google this if you don't believe me, 7 billion people, October 31st. We will reach a population of 7 billion people. That is a milestone, and I, I believe it's prophetic. Genesis chapter 6, verse 1. When man began to multiply on the face of the land and daughters were born to them, the sons of God saw the daughters of man were attractive, and they took as their wives any they chose. Then the Lord says, My spirit shall not abide in man forever, for he is flesh. His day shall be 120 years. The Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old men of renown. You have some people believing the sons of God are just human beings, others that is angels. I say they're angels based upon Jewish uh, uh, record and also the, the context of the scripture. Uh, the fact that these individuals were giants on the earth had something to do with some kind of um, spiritual 
manifestation or power. Um, also, the book of Enoch, which was used in the first century, by the way, goes into detail about who these sons of God are. So so anyway, somebody uh, at the door, <laughs> I don't know who that is. But anyway, um, verse 4, the Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterwards when the sons of God came into the daughters of man, and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, the men of renown. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of, the, of his heart was only evil continually. Verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord, I'm sorry about that, I wanted to listen to whoever this was at my door here. But anyway, verse 5, the Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth, and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. So every intention of man's heart in the days of Noah, and, and, and understand that Yeshua compared these days to the days of Noah. And many people may say, well, it's not like that, but hey, do people really care about one another? I mean, the majority of people on this earth right now. Is the majority of time when we all think, and I've been guilty of this, when we think of things, isn't it about ourselves? So, um, not that everyone is like that. Only eight people on the earth at this time was not like that, but uh, I don't think there's too many people on the earth that, that naturally uh, care about other people and they put other people ahead of their own needs. Let's be honest. Uh, Genesis 6, verse 5, The Lord saw that the wickedness of man was great in the earth and that every intention of the thoughts of his heart was only evil continually. And the Lord was sorry that he had made man on the earth and it grieved him to his heart. So anyway, that's the way he felt at that particular period of time. And going back to uh, Luke chapter 17, And then verse 26, just as it was in the days of Noah, so it will be in the days of the Son of Man. They were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. So it's going to be a snare upon the uh, over the whole earth as Yeshua prophesied it would. Most people are, are going to be surprised when this happens because they're not going to listen to preachers like me and say that that's a bunch of garbage what I'm saying. But anyway, verse 27, they were eating and drinking and marrying and being given in marriage and being given in marriage until the day when Noah entered the ark, and the flood came and destroyed them all. Verse 28, Likewise, just as it was in the days of Lot, they were eating and drinking, buying and selling, planting and building. But on the day when Lot went out from Sodom, fire and sulfur rained from heaven and destroyed them all. So will it be on the day when the Son of Man is revealed. That's when he's uh, lands on the Mount of Olives. On that day, let the one who's on a housetop, well, actually, this is talking about the, the great tribulation that would trigger his return on the Mount of Olives. I had to correct myself there. A one who is on the housetop with his goods in the house not come down and take them away, and likewise let the one who is in the field not turn back. Remember Lot's wife. Whoever seeks to preserve his life will lose it, but whoever loses his, his life will keep it. So we must be willing to sacrifice our lives if necessary during this particular period of time. Verse 34. I tell you, in that night there will be two in one bed. One will be taken and the other left. There will be two women grinding together. This does not mean a rapture. It means that... One person is going to be killed, the other will be left. One will be taken and the other left. And they said to him, where, Lord? And he said, where the corpse is, there will the vultures gather. That's talking about Revelation chapter 19. When uh, 
when the Messiah and the angels and the saints land upon the earth, and then they tell the birds to eat flesh, the vultures, and that's what that's talking about, Revelation chapter 19. So, we know that we're uh, living in the times, uh, in the days of Noah and Lot, when there's great wickedness again. Uh, homosexuality is, is almost rampant upon the whole earth now and stuff in the Arab nations. Um, Hebrews chapter 11 is getting to that point. Let's put it that way. Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, and homosexuality was prevalent in the days of Lot and Noah. Uh, Hebrews chapter 11, verse 7, it says, By faith Noah, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark for the saving of his household. By this he condemned the world and became an heir of righteousness. And what is righteousness? Psalm 119, verse 172 is all of God's Torah or commandments. Verse 7, by faith Noah, being warned by, or Torah and commandments, by faith Noah, verse 7 of Hebrews chapter 11, being warned by God concerning events as yet unseen, in reverent fear, constructed an ark. For the saving of his household, by this he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness that comes by faith. So, based on Proverbs 22, verse 3, when you hear of things, uh, you need to prepare for it. Uh, Noah prepared, but still, he needed God to help him. God had to tell him when to get into the ark. He had to tell him to build an ark. So, we still, regardless of our resources, we have to trust God. And you must meditate on Psalm 91. If there's ever a passage of Scripture that you need to really focus on, in these end times, is Psalm chapter 91. It's a very inspiring chapter, and it explains that whatever whatever occurs, God is going to protect you. He's going to protect you and preserve you and so that you can reach the overall goal of, of gaining or getting uh, immortality. And we don't get it through our righteousness. We get it through Yeshua's righteousness. In Galatians 2 verse 20, it states that he lives in us. That means he's going to be doing the righteousness through us. But... It's something that he, myself, or anyone else can't do. You have to make the decision to allow him to sup with you, to, to, to have a feast with you spiritually, to live within you. That's what you have to do, and that's something that God, myself, or no one else can do. You have to make the decision to, to allow God to come into your life. And I can influence you, I can teach you to do that, but I can't make you. That's something that you have to make up your mind to do. Okay, Finally, we will get to the topic of this Bible study, which is how do we worship God in spirit and in truth in the remaining 41 minutes of this program. I think in the future I may open the lines for people to call in, but because of lack of time here, let me just go ahead and uh, begin this. And next week this should be shorter as far as uh, me going over to Parsha, because I had to go over it too because I missed the last week. I, I just uh, was behind. And I apologize for that. But anyway, first of all, let's let's understand what the word worship means, folks. Worship means, in the original Greek, proskoneo. Right? It means to kiss like a dog licking his master's hand, to fawn or crouch to, that is literally or figuratively, to prostrate oneself in homage, to do reverence to, to adore, to worship. So we should adore God. And... The synonyms for this are similar words. To revere, stressing the feeling of awe or devotion. To honor religiously. To worship in the sense of serving. That's something that is really significant there about worship. It has something to do with serving. To act piously toward, to reverence. And this is from the Complete Word Study Dictionary, which is a very good 
tool for Bible study. I recommend you get it. They have it in digital form. You have to get you have to download this program called eSword, eSword. I think it's eSword.com or .org. And uh really need to type this in the search engine because I don't know if he's offering on his software program anymore. But the Complete Word Study Dictionary, Google that, uh, eSword, and then it will come up and you should be able to purchase it. Uh, and it will work along with the program because it's really good. Because what what happens is that, say, for instance, you click on a specific word. And that word, uh, the word Complete Word Study Dictionary will show you every case where that word is used or in the most significant cases that is used. So you'll better understand how it's used and um, and understand what the word really means in, in its original language. All right, so let's turn to John chapter 4. And I quoted scripture last week, but this is the, the scripture that we're going to build upon to understand uh, how we worship God in spirit and in truth. John chapter 4, starting in verse... Um, Now, the context of this is that he was talking to the Sumerian woman, so she she was considered considered a Gentile. In John 4, verse 20, Our fathers worship on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. In verse 21, Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship, and that's a prophecy because in A.D. 70, what happened? The destruction of the temple, right? All right. Verse 22, you worship what you do not know. We worship what we know for salvation is from who? The Jews, right? Not the Muslims, not the Catholics, not the Protestants, not the Mormons, uh, whatever, okay? From the Jews. That's a very significant statement, folks. It really, truly is. And so, first of all, in the context of this scripture, we we have the importance of the Jews and this link with worship here, all right? And then verse 23, But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship him. Verse 24, God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. So we're going to focus on this and build upon this. Um, and we need to understand the significance of the Jews, first of all. But I just want to say that the Holy Spirit that we have is the spirit of truth. And it guides us into all truth. And what is truth? Well, we're going to get into that, but the Bible indicates that truth, in John 17, verse 17, Yeshua said, Thy word is truth, when he was praying before he got crucified. Uh, in Matthew 4, verse 4, which is a direct quote from Deuteronomy, it states that man must not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. And in Psalm 119, verse 142, it says, Thy Torah, or thy, thy law, is truth. So and then Yeshua is the truth. He's the, the he's the living word of God. So that's the truth, the scriptures, that's the truth. And we have to live by the truth. And that God means what he means. He says we have to live by every word of God. And I find unfortunately among the messianic communities, the uh, Christian communities, 
or assemblies. The desire to live by every word of God is not there, unfortunately. And those who do, they're persecuted. They're persecuted, unfortunately. And those who live by the truth, their nickname is those who tremble by his words. That's one of the nicknames of people that live by the truth, and they're persecuted. Uh, let's turn to Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah chapter 66. Isaiah 66, starting in verse, and this is good because it is linked with the temple in verse 1. I love talking about the temple. I don't know why people get offended by that. I just don't understand it, you know. He even calls us, in some context, a temple. Um, Isaiah 66, verse 1, Thus says the Lord, Heaven is my throne, and the earth is my footstool. So picture, okay, heaven, that's where God's throne dwells, and then the earth is his footstool, so the earth is where he puts, lays his foot on. Okay, so <laughs> What is the house that you would build for me, and what is the place of my rest? Verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But, of course, the answer to that question is the temple, you know, so which is, uh, I think, similar phraseology is in 1 Kings chapter 8. Verse 2. All these things my hand has made, and so all these things came to be, declares the Lord. But this is the one who to whom I will look. But this is the one to whom I will look. He who was humble and contrite in spirit and trembles, trembles, take the word seriously, at my word. Do you take these words seriously? All I'm doing, I'm, I'm just a garbage, basically, like we all are compared to God, and he's just using me to quote these scriptures. Now, do you take these scriptures seriously? Do you tremble before the scriptures? Or do you say, oh, that's a mistranslation. Oh, this is a mistranslation. That's a mistranslation. This this is mistranslation. It can't be meaning what Oh, it's just, it's just, I mean, if you, that, that's not trembling before God's word. That's being tripped by God's word, which I don't see anywhere in the Bible that's what God's word does to you, to make you trip and fall, Okay. And really, you, you, you're, you're tripping yourself. Remember, the just shall live by faith, not by doubt. Anyway, Isaiah 66, verse 5. Hear the word of the Lord. That's the issue. Hear, Hebraically, means understand. Understand the word of the Lord, you who tremble at his word. So trembling at his word has something to do with the desire to want to understand his word. Okay? Your brothers who hate you and cast you out for my name's sake have said, let the Lord be glorified that we may see your joy, but it is they who shall be put to shame. And he says, the sound of an uproar from the city, a sound from the temple, uh-oh, temple, uh-oh, uh-oh. the sound of the Lord rendering recompense to his enemies, which proves again, that there's going to be a temple somewhere in his end time when the sound of the Lord renders recompense to his enemies. That's right there in Isaiah 66, verse 6. 
interesting, isn't it? Anyway. Um, that's all I do, folks. I quote the scriptures. You can easily prove what I say is true. Be a Berean, Acts chapter 17. They even checked into what Shaul or Paul was saying. And, and Paul was an expert in the law. He was a Pharisee. So, you know, <laughs> no one, no matter how great they're supposed to be, uh, can't can say that they uh, know so much that they can't be checked. Even God challenges you to prove him. Okay, so let, let's stop all this foolishness and and realize that we all need to prove everything. There's a scripture in First Thessalonians chapter five that says, "Prove all things. Hold fast. That's what is good. That means God too. Prove him. Do it in a respectful way, of course, or else you'll be cursed. But uh, you can prove God too. Okay." All right, so let's understand the significance of the Jews. I have to—I don't know if I went over this last week. I don't think so. Not—not not in the detail. I'm gonna go over today. But many people don't seem to understand because the Jews—they're—they they're, don't—they have a partial understanding of uh, the Bible because many of them today don't believe in the apostolic scriptures. They don't believe in the New Testament or what I call the Renewed Covenant scriptures. They don't believe their scriptures. And and that's why they don't have a complete understanding. But that doesn't mean that you can't benefit from the teachings. You just have to understand where they're coming from and weed out the truth from error. But anyway, this is what Paul said in Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. So I'm going to focus on what he said first. And this has everything to do with worship, that salvation is of the Jews. And then what also has something to do with worship is doing it in spirit with the right frame of mind, through the Holy Spirit, and in truth. I already defined to you what truth is. I'm going to go into further detail about that in, uh, in future broadcasts about truth and people's attitude about the truth. And, and then a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 59, through the prophet Isaiah, says that most people won't like the truth. They don't, they, they don't want to hear the truth. They don't care, you know. Uh, there's another scripture that's popped in my mind. Jeremiah chapter 23 is a prophecy about people's attitude about preaching and preachers and so forth. says um, about his words. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. He says, uh, Jeremiah 23, verse 29, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? <laughs> That's the way God's word is, folks. I mean, it's some serious, when you really hear the true words of God, it's powerful. It's like fire, and it's like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces. I, mean, I can't describe it any other way, and I want to look up this other scripture if I can find it here. Let's see.
But that's that's God's words, folks, and he wants you to take him seriously. And he wants you to uh, understand that he means business, and he wants you to change. That's what he wants you to do, most of all, is, is to change and change your ways. That's why it's that powerful. I think I, I can find the scripture here. Let me see. Um, here we go, yeah. Isaiah chapter 30, verse 8. Isaiah 30, verse 8. This is a prophecy for the end times, as you will see. Remember, the prophets are part of the foundation of the church, which includes Moses, which proves again that Moses' law, which is God's law, was not nailed to the cross, as many people erroneously erroneously think. Isaiah 30, verse 8. And now go, write it before them on a table. Isaiah 30, verse 8. Now go, write it before them on a table and inscribe it in the book that it may be for the time to come as a witness forever. So this is a 21st century prophecy. Verse 9, For they are a rebellious people, lying children. He's talking about Israel, all the tribes. Children, unwilling to hear the instruction of the Lord. That's us. 10, who say to the seers, Do not see, and to the prophets or preachers, do not prophesy to us what is right. We don't want to hear right things. Speak to us smooth things. Prophecy illusions. Leave the way. Turn aside from the path. Let us hear no more about the Holy One of Israel. Verse 12. Therefore thus says the Holy One of Israel. (laughs) Because you despise this word and trust in oppression and perverseness and rely on them, therefore this iniquity shall be to you like a breach in a high wall bulging out and about to collapse whose breaking comes suddenly in an instant, and its breaking is like that of a potter's vessel that is smashed so ruthlessly that among its fragments not a shard is found with which to take fire from the earth, or hearth, H-E-A-R-T-H, hearth, or to dip up water out of the cistern. All right, so God is telling you that you better listen to what he has to say or you're going to get spanked. That's what he's saying. And you need to desire the true words of God. Um, Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 12. I'm going to read this in the complete Jewish Bible version. Complete Jewish Bible version. I have one preacher that thinks, well, the word of God here is not the Bible. Well, the word of God, folks, is... Yeshua's, or actually the Father's words that he gave Yeshua, excuse me, the Father's words that he gave Yeshua written down. All right, so the word of God is either or. Hebrews 4, verse 12, see, the word of God is alive. It is at work and is sharper than any double-edged sword. It cuts right through to where soul meets spirit and joints meet narrow. Soul in this context means body. Or your life meets spirit, which, you know, man has a spirit, women have a spirit. And joints meet marrow, and it is quick to judge the inner reflections and attitudes of the heart. That's the reason why God looks at his words being like fire, like hammer, shattering what? 
I think it was wood, bricks, something like that. Let me see, Jeremiah 23, verse 29 again. Well, I'm just going to quote it again. Jeremiah 23, verse 29. says, in not, Is not my word like fire, declares the Lord, and like a hammer that breaks the rock in pieces? Right, so that, that's... And if you you hear me or someone else preaching the word and you you feel kind of oh he's really getting that in, that's God's word speaking to you. But if you, if you're hearing all these other preachers just make you feel good, bounce up and down, do somersaults and speak tongues and whatever you know, uh, crazy like that Blues Brothers movie I saw. Um, that's that's not God's word that you're hearing. That's that's an abbreviated version or a twisted version of God's word. God's word should change you, should motivate you to want to change. Or, you know, if you want to continue to be wicked, you're not going to like those words. <laughs> you want to get away from them. But anyway, Romans chapter 3, verse 1. Now, I want you to understand this one scripture here, okay? Because to me, it's one of the most significant scriptures in the entire Bible. Romans 3, verse 1. Then what advantage has the Jew? Okay, so Shaul is asking a question. What advantage has the Jew? Or what is the value of circumcision? Okay, which involves the oral law and all the other traditions of the Jews. Okay? Much in every way. To begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. All right, so the Jews, without the Jews, folks, we wouldn't have a Bible. Okay, Moses was of the tribe of Levi, which eventually, at that time, it wasn't linked with Judah, but eventually it became linked with Judah. That's why uh, rabbis today, they teach that Moses was a Jew. Well, actually, he wasn't a Jew. I mean, he was a Levite. But because they linked the Jews with the Levites, or they became linked with them when they returned after the destruction of the temple in 586 B.C., when Ezra and Nehemiah led that exodus back to the land of Israel, uh, Levites linked with Jews, and they've been linked with Jews ever since. So when you see a Levite, they're considered a Jew now. But that's not the way it was back in the days of Moshe. But anyway, verse 2, Much in every way to begin with, the Jews were entrusted with the oracles of God. What if some were unfaithful? And that's what I get, you know, well, some some Jews are, well, some Jews are unfaithful because they don't believe the Yeshua is the Messiah. Does their unfaithfulness or does their faithlessness nullify the faithfulness of God? By no means, no, no. Let God be true, though everyone were a liar, as it was written, that you may be justified in your words and prevail when you are judged. But, you know, they still have an advantage, folks. Even the, va- the value of circumcision, which when you understand in the context, that means their traditions, the Mishnah, the Talmud. And, you know, I just listened to somebody a couple of weeks ago telling me that, oh, the Talmud is wicked. It's got wicked things in it. Well, true. But it also has some good things in it. I don't think this person sat in a class like I did for two years, being taught by Jews all their traditions, the why they think, the way they think. And most of all, I understand now why they don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. I did this for two years. I wanted to go through that for a reason, to understand them. And can you honestly say, wife, that all their traditions are bad? Okay, Many of them are good and it helps you focus on God. It actually makes God's life interesting and fun when you do it the right way. 
me and my wife attended one of their Shabbat. And it was beautiful, and the kids were bouncing up and down, and it was beautiful. I mean, it was really beautiful the way they did their Shabbat. I mean, that I, I, I was one of the greatest experiences in my life, to be able to, to actually sit down and celebrate the Shabbat with Jews. They know how to celebrate the Shabbat. Okay, sure, you can knock them about Yeshua, and you're boasting against the branches, by the way, something that we shouldn't be doing. In Romans chapter 11, it says that, but... Uh, but God said he can put those branches back to where they belong, and he's going to do that. We've got to stop boasting and, and, and be merciful and toward them, as God was merciful toward us. Stop being arrogant. Um, because we know something they don't know. You can't just, ooh, I know what you don't know. That's being a little spoiled brat. You can't be that way. Okay, Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. I'm going to go over this because I want to prove to you out of the scriptures that the Jews are important to God. And again, Yeshua stated that salvation is of the Jews. So we need to look at that and understand what he was talking about. Hosea chapter 2. I'm sorry. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11. Hosea chapter 11, verse 12. Ephraim, which is the ten tribes of Israel in this context, has surrounded me with lies, and the house of Asher, Ephraim, is, is kind of separated from the, uh, that. That In this context, it's referring to um, uh, the British nations, British Commonwealth of Nations or the United States. We have some people can't make up their mind who it is, but I'm not going to get into that. Ephraim in this context, Mina, has surrounded me with lies, but you have to understand that Ephraim is linked with Israel, the house of Israel. Ephraim has surrounded me with lies and the house of Israel with deceit, but Judah, so there's a distinction between Ephraim and Judah here, and the house of Israel, but Judah still walks with God and is faithful to the Holy One. That's what he said back then, and this is how he feels today with us, as far as the Jews are concerned. All right. First uh, Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. 1 Chronicles chapter 5, verse 1 to 2. says, the sons of Reuben, the firstborn of Israel, for he was the firstborn, but because he defiled his father's couch, his birthright was given to the sons of Joseph, the son of Israel, so that he could not be enrolled as the oldest son. Though Judah became strong among his brothers, and the chief came from him, yet the birthright belonged to Joseph. So the birthright, meaning the, the physical prosperity blessings, went to Joseph. All right? And as far as the scepter, the 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 kingship and, and, and the ability and the responsibility to teach the law to the people went to the Jews, as you'll see here in a minute. Um, Psalm 60, verse 7. Psalm 60, verse 7.
says, Gilead is mine, Manasseh is mine, and Ephraim is my helmet, and Judah is my scepter. And Manasseh, some say is the United States, some is Britain, and then Ephraim, and back and forth. But uh, that's not a Bible study. This, this read, go to Yara Davidi's website, www.b, as in boy, org. He'll, he'll explain who Manasseh is and Ephraim and all that. But Ephraim is linked with Manasseh because they were brothers, okay? So it's Ephraim is my helmet and Judah is my scepter, okay? And that is talking about, of course, uh, kingship and the ability to uh, teach the law. All right. What's the next scripture? Psalm 108, verse 8. Same thing. <laughs> uh, I don't need to read. It's the same scripture. All right. So, um, so that explains to you the significance of the Jews, folks. Um, there's even more, but uh, Yahweh looks at the Jews as being important, and and they and they are playing a role in these end times. Uh, Matthew chapter 16, starting in verse six. If you look at the prophecies of Zechariah, um, starting in verse 12, he's going to use the Jews to uh, to take over the city of Jerusalem again. He's going to use them to, to get them out of their captivity situation at that particular period of time. He's going to save the, the Judah first, he says. That's what it says. And those prophecies. Matthew chapter 16. Judah is the Jews. The tribe of Judah is the Jews of today. Matthew chapter 16, verse 6. Jesus said to them, Watch and beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and the Sadducees, which are most, these were the most popular uh, Jewish sects at that particular period of time, the uh, Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Pharisees believed in the resurrection. The Sadducees did not. But he's telling you to be careful of, of the leaven of them both. You have some people incorrectly teaching that the Pharisees' uh, leaven uh, was immaculate. or I, I don't know. I don't know what they're teaching, but it's kind of like they, they ignore this scripture. He tells you to be careful of both of them. In other words, be careful of all Jews' teachings. Okay. So, verse 7. And they began discussing it among themselves. We brought no bread. But Jesus, aware of this, said, You of little faith, why are you discussing among yourselves the fact that you have no bread? Do you not perceive or do you not understand? Do you not remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and, and many baskets you gathered, or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many baskets you gathered? How is it that you fail to understand that I did not speak about bread? Beware of the leaven of the Pharisees and Sadducees. And then all of a sudden it clicked in her head. Ding, verse 12. Then they understood that he did not tell them to beware the leaven of bread, but the teaching, the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay? So he says to be aware of it. All right? He doesn't tell you not to listen to it. Okay? You have to be aware of their teaching. Let me look at, go to the scripture, look up some words here, get a clear meaning of the scripture here, because it's very important that you understand this. 
Yeah, in the complete Jewish Bible version, it says, Then they understood they were to guard themselves, not from yeast for bread, but from the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. So let me look at the original. See, be aware here. Let me look this up here in a Strong's Concordance here. Okay, this word means to pay attention to, to be cautious about. Okay? It doesn't mean to totally avoid the teachings of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. And that's very important to understand. To pay attention to. It means to hold a ship in direction to sail towards. It means to hold on one's course toward a place. Um, let's see, let me look at this here. It means to give attention to the guard, to be careful. Be careful. That's all he's telling us to be. Be careful of their teachings. He doesn't say not to totally avoid their teachings. And many people don't understand that. They don't understand what he's talking about here. And in Matthew chapter 23, let's look at that. This is significant. Now remember at this time, Yeshua stated in John chapter 7 that none of you keep the law. Now he was telling the majority. So he he's saying this with that kind of mindset. And he came, one of his primary responsibilities, if you look at Matthew 5, 6, and 7, Luke 6, verses 20 to 49, he came to destroy all their traditions that made the law of God or the Torah of God of none effect. And that Sermon on the Mount, that's what it's called, was a correction sermon to correct them and the things that were, that were interpreting wrong about the law. Okay? And their oral law, which became the Mishnah, then later on the Mishnah, um, was the genesis for the uh, Talmud, which is an interpretation of the Mishnah. The Mishnah was their oral laws. That um, And some of them, they went against um, the law of God. But anyway, Matthew chapter 23, I'll read this in the complete Jewish Bible version. Says then Yeshua addressed the crowds and the Talmud and noted his disciples, the Torah teachers and the Pharisees. He said, "Sit in the seat of Moshe. So whatever they tell you to do, take care to do it. But don't do what they do because they talk, but don't act." In some different translations, the Shem Tov, I think that's how you pronounce it, translation of Matthew in the Hebrew, it states that uh, whatever Moses tell you, do it. Okay, so. But either or, the main concept of this scripture is to say, if any Jew teaches you and, and, and it supports what Moses says, then you believe it. If they don't, don't listen to it. Plain and simple as that. When you combine this scripture along with uh, uh, Matthew chapter 16, verse 6 to 12, that's what it's talking about. Okay? Now, let's turn to Romans 11. Romans 11. So that's the rule that I use. You know, I have commentaries of, of great Jewish scholars, Rashi, which is one of the greatest. Um, I, I go through it, and if it's making sense, if it's according to what Moje and, and the Master stated, uh, our Lord, then I will accept it as teaching. If not, it, I throw it out. That's what you have to do. Um, Romans chapter 11. starting at verse 25. And this is, uh, unfortunately, I see this in a lot of so-called Christians and 
a lot of people in general, they, they're really anti-Semitic toward Jews, and they shouldn't be. I mean, they, here they are worshiping a Jewish person. He is a Jew. Yeshua is a Jew. Okay? And yet they're hating Jews. It doesn't make any sense. Or they act like the Jews don't have a place in God's kingdom, and they do. Romans 11, verse 25. That not you be wise in your own sight. I want you to understand this mystery, brothers. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. That means both tribes. There's a partial hardening on the Ephraim side, which is uh, symbolized by the ten tribes, which we are a part of here in the United States, uh, we are blinded of the fact that the law needs to be kept. We think the law of Moses is not the law of God, and we think the law of Moses is nailed to the cross. We understand about Yeshua. We understand that his shed blood took away our sins, but we think that it takes away our sins automatically and that we're not to do the following. Let's turn to Hebrews chapter 9. Hebrews chapter 9, starting at verse 14. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 14. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience? from dead works, which, by the way, is the first basic doctrine of God revealed in Hebrews chapter 6, uh, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. Again, this has all got something to do with the temple. The temple worship has something to do with serving the living God, folks. And Christ's sacrifice has everything to do with temple worship. All right? It's, it's, it's centered around that. And it says to purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God. So God wants us to have alive works, not dead works. And he wants us to serve the living God. How can you serve the living God with dead works? Your works have to be alive because he's alive. Okay? So that's what is meant by that. Now in Hebrews, I'm sorry, Romans chapter 11, verse 25. So I'm explaining the partial hardening. So on Ephraim, and remember in, in, in Ezekiel chapter 37, both those tribes would be united, Ephraim and Judah. Now what's Judah's um, hardening, a partial hardening? Well, we know what that is. Uh, they don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. So that's the blindness for both both main houses there, is, is uh, the blindness you have on Ephraim, the dichotomy there, you have the fact that they don't understand that you must keep the law. Despite the sacrifice of Christ, you still he he really one of the reasons why he gave his life is so that we could start to obey the Torah of God through His Holy Spirit. And then the blindness, of course, for Jews or Judah is that they don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. Okay, and he says until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in, and in this way all Israel will be saved. That it is written. The Deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And that means that Yeshua wants all kinds of people around the world, not just the two tribes to understand him. So that's what's going on right now. Uh, there's many people. I, I get emails from people from India telling me about Yahweh and, and so forth. They're, they're attracted. They're not of the tribes of Israel physically, but spiritually they are because they believe in King Messiah. So that's what's going on here until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. So this this partial blinding will occur until 
God decides that all the Gentiles he wants to come in to be involved in the first resurrection uh, will occur. And verse 26, And in this way all Israel will be saved, as it is written, The Deliverer will come from Zion, and he will banish ungodliness from Jacob. And this will be my covenant with them when I take away their sins. Verse 28, As regards the gospel, they are enemies of God for your sake. So he's saying Jews and, and uh, are enemies of God for our sake. Jews that don't believe uh, that Yeshua is the Messiah. But as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of your forefathers. For the gifts and calling of God are irrevocable. So, you know, this verse has to be talking about the tribe of Judah because certainly people that um, believe in Yeshua Messiah, they're not our enemies. But they become our enemies <laughs> if if they don't believe that the law of, of Moses is the law of God. And, yeah, I mean, even among Christians you, you have that issue too as well. But anyway, but as regards election, they are beloved for the sake of your forefathers. For the gifts and the calling of God are irrevocable. Uh, for just as you were at one time disobedient to God, but now have received mercy because of their disobedience, so they too have been disobedient in order that by the mercy shown to you, they also may now receive mercy. For God has co-signed all to disobedience that he may have mercy on all. That's why I call my fellowship mercy. Merciful servant of God. That's important to have mercy. Verse 33, Oh, the depths of riches and wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and how inscrutable his ways. All right, so he tells us to have mercy, not just to the Jews, but also to Ephraim. Many of Christians, Ephraim really is a majority of Christians around the world that believe that Yeshua died on the cross and we don't have to keep the law anymore. So we need to be merciful to them as well as to the Jews who don't believe that Yeshua is the Messiah. We need to be merciful to them both. Okay? And and gently guide them to the truth through our actions. That's what we need to do. Okay. Acts chapter 28, verse 17 Oh, well, I don't have too much time left here. I, I think I'll just sign off here. And uh, I'm going to pick up here with uh, explaining what traditions or customs are, particularly Jewish customs out of the Bible, what Paul said about it at Shaul. And then hopefully we'll get into um, some days that are probably not talked about, Purim, Hanukkah. I may do an extended Bible on Hanukkah. I think it's very important for us to understand what that represents as far as temple worship and everything um, and worshiping God in spirit and truth. I'm going to talk about the new moon that we should be, and I think today is new moon day, and we need to be celebrating the new moon day as well. So I'm going to go ahead and sign off here. Uh, may God bless and keep you, and God willing, I'll be available next week. Shalom. Malachi chapter 4 For behold, the day cometh that shall burn as an oven, and all the proud, yea, and all that do wickedly shall be stubble. And the day that cometh shall burn them up, saith the Lord of hosts, that it shall leave them neither root nor branch. But unto you that fear my name shall the Son of Righteousness arise with healing in his wings, and ye shall go forth and grow up as calves of the stall. 
and ye shall tread down the wicked. For they shall be ashes under the soles of your feet in the day that I shall do this, saith the Lord of hosts. Remember ye the law of Moses my servant, which I commanded unto him in Horeb for all Israel, with the statutes and judgments. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. And he shall turn the heart of the fathers to the children, and the heart of the children to their fathers, lest I come and smite the earth with a curse. 